You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 208 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, as usual, is Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? Oh, it's going pretty well. Uh, you know, I've had some sick kids this week, but uh, I figure what that does is sets the bar low for next week. It could get even worse. It could. It could. But oh. I, I am optimistic enough to think that it probably won't. Also joining us is David Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Home of the Super Bowl. <laughs> so I found out. Today. I, I didn't know it was in Houston until you posted that you just learned it was in Houston. Well, I, I should say we're recording this on Super Sunday. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I should care because it's the Falcons. Right, right. The team I ostensibly like. When I watch football, <laughs> I root for the Falcons. I don't know if we're going to watch it or not. Yeah, you're you're from the right state for it. The Super Bowl seems like the worst thing about American culture somehow, or like a symbol <laughs> a symbol of many bad things about American culture. I'll, I'll, although I will I will venture a thesis that what's <laughs> worse than the Super Bowl are people posturing about how much they don't care about the Super Bowl on social media. Apologies. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I don't mean like in a podcast introduction. I mean people who tweet 17 times before noon about how they're not going to watch the Super Bowl. Is there is there something going on today? Yes, precisely. I will say the Super Bowl. Oh, are, gonna... are you watching your sports ball, Neanderthal? I, yeah. I, I will say the Super yeah. Bowl is going to be in Minneapolis next year. So if somebody is looking for a place to rent at a not at all fair price just get in contact with me <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll I'll, be, I'll be happy to fleece, fleece anybody who would like to stay in minneapolis and watch the super bowl next year well i think we can all agree that the real champion is jesus well, that's that's uh that's true and also there's very little less connected with the super bowl than our topic today which is tony morrison's single (laughs) short story recitative from 1983 but first i think we need to explain something nathan how come there's been so many extra episodes on my feed ah good question michael the extra episodes are from my four days at theology beer camp uh there should be i think five uh 0.01 episodes coming your way uh they'll be kind of falling in between episodes as we get time to edit them and for me to record intros uh, so a few of those files, you know, I, I interviewed, uh, Xavier theology professor, Adam Clark about his recent work on, uh, theologies of salvation in the black church, uh, interviewed John Cobb. If you've listened to homebrew Christianity, you know, he's sort of their celebrity theologian about biblical things. 
got to talk to some folks from Crackers and Grape Juice, from the Pathological Podcast, from Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Uh, in other words, I'm, you know, got to meet some of the folks that I've been listening to. A lot of fun, and hopefully, listeners, you'll find those files a lot of fun. If you have no interest at all in Gilmore's Adventures in California, feel free to delete them. Yeah, I definitely knew what all that stuff meant. <laughs> well, with that out of the way, let's start talking about Toni Morrison, who is arguably the most important living American author. She is still alive. I believe she's 85 years old. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of incredible, I, I can say as an Americanist, that we have not discussed her yet in 208 episodes. Maybe at some point she came up in one of our big, large-scale episodes where we drop in a bunch of people, but I, I don't remember if she did. Uh, Grubbs, can you give us the broad strokes of her career and talk about the place this story, Recitative, holds in it? Well, Toni Morrison, born Chloe Wofford, interestingly enough. Tony Morrison's um, a better name. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, to- Tony Morrison is her, is her is her 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 for the front of books name, I guess. Um I am looking right now at her Nobel Prize page. Uh born February 18th, 1931, so um you know, a, a, a little more than a week after this show posts. It will be happy birthday, Toni Morrison. Uh, born in Lorain, Ohio. Um, her family, working class, and uh, but apparently she was very found a talent in writing very early on. Um, her first novel, oh, the bluest eye was that the first one? That is the first one. Yeah, bluest eye, nineteen seventy. Um, was notable. She's also taught uh, uh, taught creative writing. Um, she uh, she has been a book editor. Um, she's won a Pulitzer Prize, a Nobel Prize, a Presidential Medal. She has honorary doctorates from Harvard and Oxford and other places. So uh, she's uh, an African American writer, and her books focus on the experience of being African American, but also being, especially of being an African American woman growing up. That tends to be uh, what uh, a lot of her protagonists have in common. Um, I watched a, a YouTube video of an interview with with her in which she was uh, talking about wanting to capture something about growing up as a black girl, not a woman, but a little girl. Um, and especially uh, an unattractive little girl. And, and um, that, that very much feeds that first novel, The Bluest Eye, which is really mm-hmm. an amazing way to begin a career. Uh, that, that novel is beautiful and brutal, and um, it's, it's a really um, tremendous novel. And it's also very short. So what better place to begin, although that's not where we're beginning. <laughs> well... Uh... I know I've left out a lot of stuff. She's just she's just enormously important, as you've said. Um, she's 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 kind of a, a literary titan who also gets read by also gets read outside of literature class contexts. 
Well, it, um, it helped. It helps that Oprah named four or five of her novels to the Oprah Book Club. So I, I think she mm. is probably better known than most Faulkner influenced uh, African American postmodern writers would be. <laughs> that might be might be fair to say. Uh, the, the the Oprah probably does help. Yeah. It, it's kind of odd that she got picked. I mean, her, her books, I, I understand why Oprah would pick them, besides them being wonderful. As you say, they are they are very much tied up in the, the African-American female experience, if such a thing can exist. But they're not easy books. I mean, um, her, her, she's most famous for Beloved, uh, mm-hmm. which is a which is a book about a a, a a escaped slave who is haunted by the memory of the ghost, not the memory by the because the ghost of one of her children. I don't want to give too mm-hmm. much away. That that novel is very difficult to read, both because it is uh, it, it's it's very emotionally precarious, and then also most famously, there's a passage in the middle that is meant to. Uh, evoke the the middle passage across the ocean in in the belly of a slave ship, and it's just very dense, very confusing writing. Um, so it it's it was kind of strange to me. I was in high school, and I I knew who Toni Morrison was, but it, it was strange to me when Oprah picked her up uh, so uh, enthusiastically because because her books are not accessible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you either of you read one of her novels? I've read uh, three of them. I, I read uh, I read Beloved. I read uh, Song of Solomon, and then I I started but did not finish Paradise. And and I I have read all three of those. Although I don't remember much about Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. I, I I've taught the Bluest Eye, and I, I've read those three plus um, plus uh, Love, which I don't think very many okay. people liked. And then I read uh, Home, which was her novel before. Her most recent one. I, I find her to be remarkably consistent. Um, mm-hmm. her, not every novel she writes bowls me over, but I, I mean, she doesn't really have bad novels. Even even Love, which I think a lot of people didn't like, I thought was fine. You know, it was a it was a good novel. It it, mm-hmm. it wasn't beloved. It wasn't Paradise, but it was good. Um, so I, I I really think she has earned her position in in American lit, and it's it's worth saying she is the last person to win a Nobel, an American last American to win a Nobel before Bob Dylan. So she <laughs> she is the last she is the last author to uh, to win a Nobel for the uh, for the United right. States. <laughs> she also has um she also has a a well received book of literary theory, and now I have forgotten what the title is. So I'm going to look it up. I think it's called Playing with Whiteness. Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination. Um, and and that, is a, that is a very important book for, uh, for African-American literary studies. I mm-hmm. believe it, it started as a, as a series of lectures at one of the Ivy Leagues. She taught at Princeton for many years. So uh, mm-hmm. really in terms of American authors, you don't get more important living American literary fiction authors than Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So if you haven't read her, Recitatif is a good place to start, if only because it's very short. Uh, I mean, it's probably 10 pages long, um, whereas her other books are novels uh, and thus take a little bit more time. Oh, I, I, I do want to not uh, – we, we, we jested about how she was born Chloe Wofford. She is now Toni Morrison. She's Morrison by marriage. Right. Right. And Toni um, – 
different things I read, but one was a, an interview in which she said that Anthony was the name she took when she was baptized when she was 12. So, yeah. So that's, uh, that, that accounts for that. It's not completely out of the blue. (laughs) I should also add in addition to her own work and her literary criticism and her teaching career, she, she was also an editor at Random House, um, before she became famous. And so I, I should have looked this up, but I didn't. But I believe that she is responsible, among other books, for uh, Gail Jones's Corrigadora. Do you, do you guys know if that's true? I don't know. She, she, no idea. She certainly, even before she was famous, helped other African American women get published. And Corrigadora is a uh, is another uh, really brutal kind of seventies look at uh, at what it means to be an African American woman. Um, I, I would also recommend that one. I, I, I may be wrong that she had anything to do with it, but I, I think that I think that she was an editor on one stage or another of that manuscript. Hmm. Anyway, before we talk about the specifics of the story, I want to speak pragmatically about it. And we're going kind of out of order here in, in terms of the way we normally do things. But this story <laughs> is kind of weird and out of order itself. So. Nathan, how would you go about teaching recitative? What sort of class would you teach it in, and what sort of uh, approach to it would you take? Well, my first answer is uh, no class that I currently teach. <laughs> so, um, you know, my my sophomore literary survey ends in, you know, the 14th century, so this really wouldn't fit in that. And that's, you know, the other uh, literature classes I teach are European literature classes. So uh, this would be something where, you know, so perhaps if I were – you know, moonlighting at a another local college, and I were teaching a general intro to lit. I might bring this in, but as far as how I would teach it, this one strikes me as a really good story uh, for talking about Stanley Fish's style of reader response criticism. Um, and I say Stanley Fish's version because sometimes people hear reader response, and it's basically some variation of how does the story make you feel. That's not what I'm thinking <laughs> about. Um, it is more along the lines of. What does this text do to the reader as the reader reads it? Hmm. And the reason I think that's interesting is because this is a story that repeatedly and I would say uh, very willfully raises certain expectations and then reverses them uh, so that you sort of experience as a reader a repeated disorientation as you read this story. So, you know, that that's probably the approach that I would take. Uh, simply because, you know, the main characters, as we'll discuss here in a little bit, uh, their identities, their backstories, who it is you side with, where your sympathies fall, so on and so forth, move around over the course of the story. So it really is one that's interesting when we're thinking about, okay, what does a text do to and for a reader? Uh, Grubbs, how about you? I mean, do you have any context where you could naturally fit the story in? The second composition class that uh, I teach at HBU is is like the second composition class at University of Georgia in that it's a it's a writing about literature course. So it's it's sort of an intro to lit with um, with the composition uh, component. So th- this is the kind of uh, this is the kind of story that uh, that I use uh, in that class. Our particular uh, I, I just haven't used that this particular story because I tend to do things thematically, and 
Yeah, I do a lot of Poe. <laughs> Anyways, um, but the the approach to teaching it, if I if I'm doing intro to lit, it's that same uh, some of the things that you're saying, Nathan. Uh, but I, I, this is the kind of story that I like to uh, assign when we're talking about the uh, the importance of narrator and point of view and the degree to which a voice uh, the voice in the text is um, is constructing the story and how much you have to pay attention to the designs that that voice has on you um, and and, and uh, the that's what I was thinking as you were talking about reader response, Nathan, is the, the idea that this story, this story has designs on you. Um, yeah, of course, all, all, all literature has designs on you, but this, this one makes you feel your switches flipping much more <laughs> audibly, so to speak. But right, only, right. only if you're paying a reasonable amount of attention, which, which means one of mm-hmm. the fun things to do about this story is teach it in just the sort of class you're talking about. And mm-hmm. uh, assume that the students have not been paying close enough attention to realize they're being pushed around. And so they, right. they have – I don't want to give anything away just yet. I'll let you know, uh, listeners, when the, the spoilers will be coming. But <laughs> there's a certain set of assumptions you have going into this story. And who, what the assumptions are depend an awful lot on who you are. And the story, once you begin to discuss it, forces you to examine your assumptions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it basically, like the the first time I read it, when I was I was nineteen or something, I definitely did not. I, I did not read it closely enough to to recognize the process you're talking about, David. Like, like mm. th- this is something that had to be explained to me as I have to explain it to I don't know seventy five percent of the students don't don't realize mm-hmm. what has happened when they're reading. I'm sorry, listeners, that we I keep speaking in these generalities, but I want to go as far as I can before we give away the big twist. If you can even call it a twist, it's not really a plot twist. It's like a meta plot twist. It's a a series of rug jerks. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I didn't read it until after, you know, I was already teaching English. So I think uh, I'm a different kind of uh, a different kind of reader than my students are, obviously. Otherwise, otherwise, why am I in front of the class? Right. And I read what? it for the first time preparing for this episode. So, did you really? pick up on it immediately, Nathan? Only because you warned me about it. Okay. I, I don't think I would have been smart enough to pick up on it on my own, though. I waited a long time to send in the um, the the episode questions because I I wanted to make sure you'd had a chance to read it so I didn't give it away. Hmm. And I did read the story before I read the show notes, listeners. So don't worry about that. I'm just astonished to having read something first, or at least before <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, David, that applies to many, many things. I assure you. <laughs> well, one more, one more point before we get into the stuff that we're going to have to give a spoiler warning for. Recitative is a musical term. David, mm-hmm. you made me talk about musical terms at our Christmas episode, so I'm going to make you talk about them now. <laughs> what, what the heck is a recitative? Why is it so hard for me to say? And why did Morrison name her story after it? Oof. Um, why is it hard to say? Well, for one thing, it's because it's not a word in English. We uh, we adopt it. Uh, in, in fact, my my wife 
insist that it should be said recitative. But that oh, is yeah, because it's not hard enough for me to not say recitative. Uh, <laughs> she wants recitative. me to pronounce it with a bad Italian accent. No, seriously, I, I went on YouTube and I pulled up like, how do you pronounce this? And there was like one video that included five different voices pronouncing it that many different ways. And it was at that point that I just flipped a table and walked off. No, um, <laughs> my guess is that if you're British, you say recitative because who cares? Yeah, because um, they, well, they have that they have that weird power move of mispronouncing yeah. Romance languages. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is if you're getting it from French, you say recitatif. If you're getting it from Italian, you say recitatif. Um, it just depends on what was your route into opera, because that's what it is. It's an opera term. Uh, it refers to, um, well, in opera, the big, the big money numbers, right, um, are the arias. Right? Mm-hmm. We've got the big soloist and the big melodies and all the rest of it. But opera is a uh, sung drama, and there sometimes there's just times when you just have to say stuff, and those times are the recitatif. It's um, it's sort of the co- the conversational passages in which characters are just you know just talking. They're still singing. Um, they're still accompaniment even. Uh, there's still a score, but it's meant to be more conversational, more informal, less showboaty, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why is this? Uh, why is this particular story called that? Well, it is. It is a first uh, a story told in the first person. Uh, it's it. It has a very vernacular sort of spoken style to it. Uh, it also, I, th- I think is meant, um, I, I don't know, I don't about, don't know about you gentlemen, but when I saw that term, um, it sort of blends in my head with the, with the, the word recitation, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, which is to speak, to speak back something. Right, right. right. And, this uh, is- and I wonder, David, I, I didn't look this up before we started recording, but I wonder if it's re- uh, related to the um, the term in sort of classical oration, the, the recitation. Hmm. I, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But but this is a a recitation of past events. It's 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 mm-hmm. the, the I that is speaking the story is distinctly speaking the past back to us and it's um, important to be a recitation right because it's it's from memory and memory is such a such a i, I don't know key tricky. battleground in a story mm-hmm. important slash tricky thing yeah well yeah what what our speaker can recite confidently or not is something that the story hinges on right I like what you said about arias being the the thing everybody wants in the opera because, in some sense, Twyla, our narrator, is is someone who who does not speak from an aria position <laughs> in society, right? I mean, she she doesn't get glory really at any point point in the story. She she's always mm-hmm. subaltern is probably going too far because she does have a voice, but but she mm-hmm. is um, she is at the bottom of society. She she begins as an orphan. And and the most she gets is the wife of a firefighter, I believe. So right. so it, it makes sense she wouldn't get an aria, 
Whereas perhaps Roberta, mm-hmm. who is her, her counterpart in the story, begins doing recitative and then ends up perhaps doing aria. Mm-hmm. Although when she does approach aria, even if we are going to say that it's not complete aria, you know, it's in this bizarre, uh, subversive, even muddle-headed way that we're going to talk about later. Bizarria. <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, let's, uh, let's put the spoiler warning here. We're going to, we're going to give away all the weird crevices of this story. So if you haven't read it, go read it. There's a link to it in the show notes. It'll take you less than half an hour. Go read the story and come back because we're about to spoil it. The most significant feature of recitative is its failure to designate the races of its two main characters. That's not exactly, like, as I said, a plot twist, but it is a, a meta plot twist. The story is mm-hmm. very clearly about race, but it's going to be very, very difficult to say anything in particular about any particular race. We know that Twyla and Roberta are different races. We don't know who is what, as it were. Why would Morrison do such a thing, Nathan, and, and how is she playing with us throughout the story? Well, I'll just talk about my own experience reading it just because I've not taught this story. I've really only read it a couple times uh, prepping for this episode. So early in the narrative, uh, when Twyla and Roberta are two orphans, you know, Twyla being our narrator, are placed in this uh, children's home. Uh, one of the first things we find out about Twyla is that her mother is not pleased with her being put in a room with a person of that race. Uh, so at this point, I'll, I'll just you know, go ahead and lay my cards on the table. I assume, okay, Twyla's white, Roberta's black. Okay. Uh, just cause I assume it must be a white woman who doesn't want her child in a room with a black person. Um, we're also told that those people smell funny. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, um, you know, so right there, you know, my expectation is pretty well set. The next several scenes I'm imagining, uh, Twyla as a white girl, Roberta as a black girl later on in the story. Um, you know, we have, uh, Twyla's mother, uh, coming into the story and I've already forgotten the name, Mary. Yeah. Is that right? I think that's Mm -hmm. correct. Okay. All right. Uh, and you know, she has certain cultural markers, uh, that sort of, you know, at the very least point to a sort of bohemian character to her. Uh, but you know, when she sees her daughter at the orphanage, her first line is Twyla baby. And, uh, you know, okay, I think, okay, that's that's odd for a white woman to say. So, I mean, you know, maybe I got it wrong at the beginning. You know, destabilized you here again. A little bit later on still, Twyla is, you know, working as a, a waitress at a Howard Johnson's restaurant, uh, roadside motel restaurant. And we see Roberta again. And what Twyla notes about her is how big her hair has gotten. Uh, and it's described, I mean, in ways that I'll admit made me think Afro. And so, you know, I thought, okay, so maybe I was right the first time. Twyla's the white one. Roberta's the black one. And later on still, uh, they're involved in these counter-protests that I talked about earlier. And, you know, Twyla is on the side of busing and school desegregation. Roberta is on the side of against desegregation. Uh, So I start assuming that Roberta must be the white one. And so, I mean, all the way through this story, I mean, it it really felt like every three or four pages, I'm thinking, okay, I have no idea who these characters are, although I have a very good idea who each of them is. Uh, And it's always in relation to the other character. It's always something that is, um, you know, the way that it's narrated. I mean, you can tell that they are different. You can tell they're aware of their difference. Uh, 
but it keeps flipping around. I mean, who's different for what reason? And then the very last one that I'll talk about before I lateral to David, since it's Super Sunday, um, <laughs> is that at the very end, um, it's Roberta who says that, and it's not Bonnie because that's the name of the school, that uh, is Maggie? it Maggie? Maggie. Yeah, that Maggie was black, and I mean, how wretched you are for, you know, kicking a black woman while she's down and then, you know, not even acknowledging it later. So at the very end, I'll admit, I mean, I... I have a, a pretty good idea that Twyla is black and Roberta is white, but I'm a lot less sure than I am about most literary characters that I've ever encountered. So, David, <laughs> help me out here. Is there some clue in here that actually deciphers all this? Um, <laughs> I used to think so, but I don't anymore. Uh, because... The first time around, I thought I might be smarter than Toni Morrison, and now I've conceded that I'm not. Very and, few people are smarter than Toni Morrison. <laughs> right, right. I see. See, the first time I read this, I'm like, "Oh, come on, this is not hard." And then, and now I go back to it. I'm like, you know, that was a trap. This is this is all a trap. <laughs> so, so I don't. Um, I, I will say I, I I have I feel like I can consistently read this story both ways and it and I don't know that it actually makes much difference. Okay. Um, because it just because what it because what it ends up doing is making class and economics and. Um, Engagement or disengagement with pop culture or a, var- a variety of things. It, it, it basically disgages those things from race in, you know, so that, you know, this, this could be, you know, a white girl from a, you know, from a conservative with a, you know, conservative sickly mother and then the black girl whose mother parties, or you could reverse it. And, Mm -hmm. and it all still, and it all still works. The whole thing still runs. The one point of the story though, David, and I mean, I'll I'll just confess this is a, a deficiency in my knowledge of American history. Mm -hmm. How prominent would it have been for, African-Americans to be protesting against school de- desegregation. I'm so glad you asked that. The, oh, okay, okay. I'll oh, see. Looky there. The city I'm, where it's I'm, taking place, and I can't I just rem- tossed the alley-oop. I can't remember oh, what wrong the... sport, wrong sport. Uh, yeah, um, is, a, is an IBM town, and in the late mm-hmm. 70s, they were very purposely trying to bring in black computer engineers. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Which, which is arguably... Roberta's her, Roberta's husband's a computer engineer, yeah, but yeah. arguably he is he is one of the African American engineers they're bringing in, which means once again the busing issue could be not so much about race but about class. It could it, it could oh, be that mm-hmm. Roberta and her yeah, husband but, are upper are yeah. upper middle class upper class they they're living in a community of mostly white upper class people and they don't want other black people shipping their kids in not because they're black but because they're poor mm-hmm. they're, they're One dangerous clue ain't even a knockdown clue you you yeah. do have to like i i think there was a footnote in some edition of the of the 
story that I read. Like, it's not like I knew that off ah, the top of my head. Okay, okay, but yeah, I, and I, I was believe that's an true. online edition without footnotes. So, there, I, I believe, I believe that's true. That the the town they're in is very like purposefully brought in a bunch of African American computer engineers. Okay, all right. So it's still up in the air. You know, it, it, she could, he could be one of them. He could not be one of them. The the genius point to me is they use Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, like yeah. That's, that's the rock star Roberta and her friends are following. Because, like, what does uh-huh. that tell you? Almost nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it, it, and, exactly. and they've grown their hair out gigantic to go to a Jimi Hendrix concert. Well, that... <laughs> I, I brought up the, the thing about those people smell funny because I would always play dumb in class. I would always... I, I forget the exact question I would ask. But I would ask a uh-huh. question that, that made the white people in the the room announced that Twyla was white as if it were completely obvious. And they would always point to that thing about, uh, about those people smell at which point the black people in the room would point out, uh, yeah, that's what black people say about white people too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that she says that they were, that she was told that they don't wash their hair and they smell funny. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, as, I have multiple friends who, because of adoption, have children of African American uh, descent. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they learned that they've had to learn to do is that they can't use the same hair care products and the same in the same way um, when when caring for their children's hair. Right. Uh, and, but then again, if you set it back in the time period, white people didn't wash their hair all that much either. Right. Right. <laughs> right? So, see, I, I used to think that that, 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 that particular, um, the hair care thing, I used to think that was the knockdown clue. But now I don't anymore because of the time period. Well, and it's also mm. worth noting it's not something that adheres to reality. It's what it's what people are saying about whatever the other race is. Right. Right. I think David, you're dead on when you say that, that what, what's happening here is racial and class signifiers are getting mixed up here. And we're mm-hmm. so used in this country to, to thinking of them as very similar, you know, race, race signifiers mm-hmm. largely are class signifiers um, mm-hmm. with, with some exceptions. I mean, um, City of Man did that wonderful episode a few weeks ago about uh, yes. hillbilly elegy, and, and there is a place yep. where class signifiers sometimes come unstitched from racial signifiers. But for the mm-hmm. for the bulk of the country, race signifiers are class signifiers, and and uh, and Morrison has very expertly uh, untied them and then tied them to a bunch of other stuff. So the, you're never mm-hmm. quite clear what the signifiers are signifying to use kind of hillbilly. Uh, post-structuralist terminology. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't, I'm glad that you brought that up because I kept thinking it as I was as I was reviewing the story this time. I kept thinking, Twyla's white trash. That, yeah, or she's black that, trash. She she's trash. That 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 much is true. Her her mother's <laughs> a stripper, right? I mean, her mother, if not a stripper, she's kind of an amateur stripper. Her her mother her mother her her mother does not have social graces. She's not proper, mm-hmm. and in some right, in right. some sense, it's not it's not all that important whether Twyla's white or black, except that it's incredibly important. 
because everybody mm-hmm. in the story treats it as, as if it's important. It's just that Morrison's not giving us enough information to know which one it is. Right. Mm. What a brilliant story. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what's amazing is you can read it and, you know, experience the story and love it without ever thinking about that stuff. But that stuff is there if you want to think about it. And arguably right. the most important part of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, you're always thinking about it. I think you can enjoy it without being certain of it. Oh, I meant you can enjoy it without even thinking about what Morrison is doing, without without thinking about oh, her. Okay, okay, okay. Her kind I, of I show game. You could read playing. it without thinking about white and black, and I'm no, like, you cannot. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. But you can That's you can fair. think you can read it without thinking about the trick Morrison is playing. You can be tricked and still enjoy the story, more or less on its own terms. Yeah. Like I said, I've tried. I, I have tried to to intentionally read it both ways and see what difference that it makes to the story. And I think it does make some differences, which I, I think we're actually going to lean to some places where that that can get teased out. But both end up being rewarding stories that do things that a Toni Morrison would want to do. Mm-hmm. So it's so it's not as if um, reading it one way makes me feel as if I'm reading it against the grain. That's a. It, it just seems to be another way in which it's genius, or both mm-hmm. ways are reading it. I mean, each either way you read it, you're going to run into something uncomfortable, something yeah. something that you have to kind of do the limbo to explain, right? And, and not exclusively uncomfortable in a sort of white guilt sort of way, but I mean uncomfortable. You're right in the sense that it doesn't fit with your expectations. Mm-hmm. E- either way, you feel like she's playing with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Playing in Which the dark. She is. Well, uh, Restitutif also strikes me as a, as a story about friendship, uh, particularly the friendships of childhood that don't necessarily survive into adulthood. Am I just being sentimental here, David? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, because a lot of them don't, right? Well, I mean, this is certainly a childhood. A childhood association. Um, I mean, some people you're friends with because you've got a kind of kinship of of perspective. And often those are the friendships that you preserve, um, even after changes of context. But this is what I would call a fellow traveler friendship. Uh, You know, when you sort of form an alliance, uh, a kind of companionate comradeship with someone that you just happen to be around a lot. Uh, I, I form these kinds of fellow traveler friendships um, pretty easily. Uh, coworkers, people I go to church with, you know, just as long as I'm kind of in the same place, you just sort of fall into these, into these relationships. And if there's a serious change of context, often these are the friendships that don't, uh, that don't get retained, not not through any kind of ill will, but you know, just because th- they happen because of happenstance, and then they don't get maintained because of happenstance. And I don't feel particularly, um, I, I I don't always feel maybe as guilty as I should uh, about that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things that makes uh, the story special though is that it is that it features the repeated reencounter of these people who had been um, sort of fellow traveler friends as children 
re-encountering each other as adult first, you know, young adults. And then, and then, you know, after years and years, uh, again and again, realizing just how different they've become and just how far their experiences have pulled them apart and made it, uh, made the possibility of returning to where they were before, um, almost impossible but still even at the end of the story there's this sense that both of them shared with the other something precious and they need the other one with them to make sense of it um which i think is which i think is interesting it's it's as if they can't make sense of that that past moment that they shared without the other one there to to think through it with them Mm mm-hmm and just to tack on to that, I mean, you know, you kind of get that dynamic of, you know, the childhood friends who can finish each other's sentences in mm. the incoherent protest I mentioned earlier. You know, uh, you know, Twyla's response to the picket lines against school busing uh, is to <laughs> spray paint a sign that says, and so do children. Yeah. <laughs> and that only makes sense if you've got Twyla's sign, or pardon me, Roberta's sign, mothers have rights, you know, and then, and so do children. As a response, so I mean, uh, even her her one attempt to go back to the story's title to have her aria moment, she <laughs> is doing it in the style of a recitative, which often features singers, you know, trading lines back and forth to sort of set that exposition. So, you know, that's another uh, facet of their friendship that you know persists in this strange way uh, into their adulthood. Yeah, they're they're a they're a binary pair that is mutually definitional. Um, which um, for anybody mm-hmm. who's studied mm-hmm. post-structuralist theory even a little bit, that's how binary pairs work. What is what is what is Great. light? It is the opposite of dark. Well, what is dark? It's the opposite of light. These are two terms, neither one of which can have a definition without the other term. And likewise, you can't have Twyla without Roberta. At least not at least not in the form we get her, because really mm-hmm. all we know about Twyla is her relationship with Roberta. Hmm. What, uh, what's interesting is that clearly they do have a life outside of uh, outside of their childhood, and even later on when they reencounter each other, it's it's those tags of the life that they've had separately that keep kind of coming back. Um, and, and every time they meet, it's again this kind of dialectic in which they have to reestablish some kind of detente right Mm -hmm. Uh, in spite of the thing in spite of the things in the rest of their life that have pulled this pair apart they have to figure out again how how is it that you make me this is is this is a relationship that can be called a friendship for about six months you know when they're when they're what nine Mm -hmm. years old I can't remember how old they are at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And yet, in some ways, it appears to be yeah. the most important relationship in Twyla's life, at least for the purposes of the story. And because Twyla doesn't exist outside of the story, you know, that that's how it is in reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as mm-hmm. is typical for Morrison's fiction, religion lurks around the darkened corners of Recitatif. Uh Is there anything meaningful we can say about its treatment of Christianity, Nathan? I'm, I'm really like, this is an open question. I'm not sure the degree to which this story has anything to say about religion. <laughs> well, I'll go ahead and say that in pregame, uh, Grubbs helped me to answer this because there was a detail <laughs> of the story that I'd completely forgotten and he reminded me of that when Roberta's mother, who is ill, 
uh, visits the orphanage, she has this gigantic cross That's on right. the front of her clothing. Um, and, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have no idea what to do with this. I went back and reread it. I mean, it almost sounds, it reads like it's a, some sort of stole, uh, but she doesn't strike me as particularly, you know, clergy. Um, but what we do know is that, is that the singular visual sign of Roberta's mother is this giant Christian cross. Uh, and it's giant because Roberta's mother is also giant. Uh, and really, I mean, you know, that, that's about all we get of that symbol. But it does establish a certain visual image for a character who otherwise is very lacking in visual symbols uh, for the reasons that we talked about before. So uh, if you want to think about, you know, Roberta as the one with some kind of Christianity in her background, that's not a bad way to start. Another place in the story that, that struck me, and this is actually where I was going to go with the answer originally, uh, is that the sort of signature uh, moment of the story, the signature dispute, uh, namely the Maggie incident, which we're going to kind of talk about here in just a few minutes, uh, takes place in a an orchard full of apples. Now, listeners, mm-hmm. before you write in, I'm aware that the Hebrew text of Genesis 3 does not mention an apple, but there sure is a whole heck of a lot of art that, disp- that depicts an apple in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And I've got to think that this moment, which is in a lot of ways a loss of innocence for these two characters, surrounded by these apples, has that kind of overtone of, you know, this is the original sin that causes their split, even though we know as readers that split had its origins elsewhere. Um so, I mean, I, I think those are two definite places where uh, Christianity kind of shows up in recitative. David, are there any other bits that you'd point to? Well, when they're, the context where you see the crosses is their mothers, uh, their mothers visiting for, uh, was it for Easter? It, it must is be because they've, the, got, they've got Easter baskets yeah, right, with right. jelly beans and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And... They then go in. Uh, apparently, they 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 go to the chapel. Also, th- this this orphanage, Saint Bonnie's, is uh, Saint Bonaventure. So the mm-hmm. idea is that, you know, these are uh, these are nuns. This is a religiously of uh, a religious affiliated, religiously sponsored um, mm-hmm. orphanage, and the fact that her mother, that Mary, cannot, um, just doesn't know how to be in church. Right. She doesn't. She doesn't dress for. She doesn't know how to dress appropriately for church. She doesn't know how to sit still during the sermon. Um, yeah. She and and uh, all that all that going to chapel means for Twyla, at least in this one little scene, and this is the only scene we see of them doing it, uh, is the discomfort of her mother not belonging there. Right. So, you know, again, the one of the functions that Christianity plays in this story is uh, seems to be a kind of class difference. Do you, mm-hmm. you know, good Christian folk act like this, but Mary's not capable of being like that. Do you, do you think um, St. Bonaventure is just set dressing, or do you think the actual medieval theologian has any relationship to this story whatsoever, David? Um, 
If I had to guess, St. Bonaventure was chosen simply so that it could be called St. Bonnie. I have to say, they should have chosen St. Bonifacius. <laughs> Actually, I do have another question about another detail that might be entirely insignificant. But when they call the woman who runs the orphanage Big Bozo, is that an Eastern European slur? Or would Bozo the Clown have been a, a cultural artifact by that town time? <laughs> Is Bo- no, Bozo I'm being serious. Is a I don't Eastern know. European I... slur? Oh, that, that's where I've heard it. Yeah, I mean that the the practice of calling someone a bozo was, I mean, a a, the a Polish bozo slur. Bozo the clown. I'm reading. Interesting. Uh, was franchised in uh-huh. 1956 and was common by the mid 60s. Okay, yeah. so that would have worked here. Period appropriate. I I had never heard that bozo was a. Yeah, I believe I heard that on the uh, um, the Lexicon Valley podcast, which is a, a linguistics podcast I listen to. The Bozo are also a fishing people of the central Niger Delta in Mali. Well, <laughs> it's almost I certainly that, not a reference no, I would to think that. Not. <laughs> um, I wonder what that's. Te- I mean, other than they think that Miss that that Mrs. Itkin, the the who runs the place, other than. The, they they find her clownish and ridiculous. I wonder if that gives us any information. Like, well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, does she have a hair? Sort of Polish accent. It's that, also a colloquial. You know, it's also a colloquial color. vulgarism for a prostitute in Georgian language. Georgian, I assume, meaning the Eastern European country and not the southeastern United States state. <laughs> I was going to say that's not one I've heard. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I, I read right yeah. over that, Nathan. I just assumed. I just assumed that Bozo was referring yeah. to the clown. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I mean, because I, you know, I'll I'll just say that you know I didn't grow up around the most enlightened folks in Central Indiana, and I mean I could imagine them calling someone with a German accent big sure. kraut. Yeah, yeah. See, I just assumed that it meant that she probably had like. Or I think she wore too much uh, lipstick. Ah, okay, okay. That that's probably that probably requires less acrobatics. Right, Although in yeah. this story, no interpretive you know, acrobatics. Th- things that require not much acrobatics, I'm suspicious of. <laughs> <laughs> Is a fair. The story point. ends with an aborted shared memory that we have referred to already several times, but let's um, let's fill that analysis out what is at stake in twyla's and roberta's disagreement about maggie Mm. well two different disagreements happen in the story maggie is a uh, well she's described as the the kitchen woman with legs like parentheses which man is that a Mm -hmm. uh, tony morrison description (laughs) <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> right um uh and she's also described as uh as a deaf mute uh because she never speaks and they believe that she can't hear uh at least you know maybe she can't hear it's not entirely certain and at one point in that in that apple orchard uh, scene. Uh, some children uh, gang up on her and uh, yell at her, uh, push her down, and it's it's something that that clings in Twyla's memory is the memory of having seen this. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And in adulthood, when when she and Roberta are uh, brought back together again, Roberta brings it up and says the woman that the woman was black, which Twyla doesn't remember that detail. Mm-hmm. Twyla doesn't remember that her being black. And then on another occasion, uh, Roberta s- a- actually says that that they that they too had 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 actually participated in the the bullying the the assault on this disabled woman that that they had pushed her and kicked her uh, mm-hmm. again, which Twyla denies. Um, and even though. Um, by the end of the story, Roberta has said that that no, we didn't we didn't actually participate in that, um, and she has her own reasons for for saying that she she thought they had. Um, th- there is there is still this question about what happened, and that's how the story ends. What happened to her? Mm-hmm. So so apparently something enormous is at stake here. Um, what exactly that is, I, I'm hoping that we can, I'm hoping that we can figure it out. But um, can we agree that it would be a different thing at stake, particularly for Roberta, um, depending on whether you read her white or black? Yeah. Oh yeah. So maybe we can game both sides and see. Well, I'll just go ahead and tell you how I read it because I, I didn't know about the. IBM story that Michael just related to us. I mean, what I saw this, what I saw happening here was Roberta kind of throwing in Twyla's face, you know, you pretend that you care about um, whether or not black children get bussed into the school, but I mean, you were there kicking a black woman when you could have at least laid out of it or even interfered. So, I mean, I, I saw it as a sort of moralistic ploy. Uh, on Roberta's part, you know, as a sort of two quoque, uh, you know, don't pretend to be concerned about this because I saw you when you really weren't. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, if you read it, you know, with uh, Twyla Black, Roberta White, that's kind of what you end up with. I mean, how about if you flip those? Oh, just for, to pursue that one, I mean, later on mm-hmm. when Roberta says, no, we didn't actually participate, but she says... Uh, uh, I'd said that before because she can remember wanting to participate that she didn't actually, I mean, she didn't, she didn't physically participate, but she, uh, she confesses that in that moment there'd been, there'd been a desire to do so. Um, and if this is the white Roberta reading, um, that you've been pursuing, she, she's a, she's masking her own memory of that kind of, uh, uh, complicity and racial violence. She's masking her own guilt at that by attempting to push it by push it on Twyla, who in this reading is black, and in, kind of include her in that. Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 two are a hypocrite along with me. When when what she really knows and what she's crushed by is that this was something inside her. Um. But if you but if you flip it, then you have to ask a question. Why did Roberta want to join in the assault on Maggie? Mm-hmm. Which then you run into maybe the class things, maybe the um, 
the desire to belong with the set of the older, stronger girls mm-hmm. to be on the to be on the side of the strong who who don't get beat up along with the weak. And then if you read that along um, with the rest of her biography, she does seem to have gotten a life of great privilege by continually allying herself with those who have it. Yeah. Right. Um, again, which, again, which makes, which makes a different kind of difference. So uh, is is that, is that fair? Am I, am I pushing it too far? No, no, I think that's fair. The other thing I would bring up is Maggie. We, we talked about how Twyla is not subaltern. Maggie really is. Even if they could find Maggie, Maggie can't tell her own yeah. story. She can't narrate it. So, right. so mm-hmm. here you have a mystery that could never be solved, even if Maggie were real, and even if we tracked her down. That th- this is this is mm-hmm. a this is a mystery that is locked up inside of her mind. I don't mean to say, by the way, that people right. who can't speak, you know, have no means of communication. But in the world of the story, that seems to be the case. Right. I mean, and I mean. By the end of the story, I'm wondering, was she actually mute or was she crying out and the girls are repressing right. that, too? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it all depends on how much how much is repressed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I never get the sense that Twyla feels like she's repressing anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that Roberta keeps uh, and each of these encounters comes back by, you know, comes back with details of what she's she said happened and twilight's like i don't remember that right and the, and did roberta is roberta bringing us new information that we didn't have before <laughs> or is roberta making stuff up mm-hmm. because she backs off one detail that she brought up but she doesn't back off the other right so uh, i don't know <laughs> Well, what happened to Maggie, right? I mean, that's the, the the story ends with this question that that can't be answered, just like all of the uh, all of the important racial questions yep. of the story can't be answered. Maggie seems to mm-hmm. contain both races at once, just as Twyla and Roberta seem to shift between them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roberta still, I mean, uh, she still comes off as the insightful character in the end um i think because she's she she's the one who actually feels the weight of that question um twyla seems to be perfectly content to move on from it um but roberta feels as if she cannot she can't let go of it um that that moment seems to continue to haunt her and the only one that can aid her in laying that ghost is twyla Mm. Right. Well, if uh, if you can solve this mystery for us, send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. Our uh, our website is christianhumanist.org. dot org. David, what's on tap for next week? Well, a little while back, one of our dear listeners, uh, who whose name escapes me at the moment because I don't have it in front of me, um, asked if we uh, if we'd ever considered doing an episode on riddles, and I thought. That sounds right up my alley. So, riddles. I was hoping you would answer my question with some sort of rhymed <laughs> series of questions in return. Uh, oh well, that'll have to wait uh, for next uh, week. Alas, that would have taken 
That would have taken more <laughs> prep. <laughs> the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. Till next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>